Okay, we got about 35 minutes to cover two foundations. We ought to be able to do that. I mean, we covered two already in seven hours. Okay, third foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of citta. Citta be translated as heart-mind. In many Asian languages, the distinction between thoughts and emotions that we make in the West isn't made. They're lumped together. So the chitta is all the center of all the emotions and also the center of all the thinking. But in terms of the third foundation, what's actually meant is mind states. I'll read you what the Buddha says. And how does one abide contemplating mind states as mind states? Here one knows a lustful mind is lustful. A mind free from lust is free from lust. A hating mind is hating. A mind free from hate is free from hate. A deluded mind is deluded. An undiluted mind is undiluted. A contracted mind is contracted. A distracted mind is distracted. <coughs> a developed mind is developed. An undeveloped mind is undeveloped. A super- surpassed mind is surpassed. An unsurpassed mind is unsurpassed. A concentrated mind is concentrated, an unconcentrated mind is unconcentrated, a liberated mind is liberated, an unliberated mind is unliberated. So what we can say is basically what the Buddha is saying, know your state of mind. Is your state of mind a greedy mind, a hating mind, a confused mind, a distracted mind, or is it a loving mind, a generous mind, uh, now, what's going on with your mind state? When you're meditating, are you concentrated or are you not concentrated? So, pretty simple thing. Just know your mind state. Now, again, this is probably not one you want to do for a whole 45-minute meditation period. Right? Sit down. My mind state is, well, a little dull. Yep, still a little dull. Well... But it would be good to check in with your state of mind when you sit down. And it might be good to check in again, especially if you've been distracted and you come back. You know, what's your state of mind like? What did that distraction do to your state of mind? Make you agitated? Feeling greedy or angry? Okay, so check in from time to time. And it's especially a good thing to do on a regular basis. Not only should you be checking in with your postures and noticing when they change, you should be checking in with your mind state and noticing when it changes. The third foundation is pretty simple there. Know your state of mind and know when it changes. Because, again, the refrain, one does it internally, externally, arising and ceasing. With the Vedana, they rise and cease very, very quickly. With the mind states, they rise and cease more slowly. You may wake up in a mood and the mood stays with you all day. You know, other little states pop in and out, but that grumpy mood is there all day long or something. All right. But notice they're arising and passing. And for both of these foundations, the second and third, doing it internal means knowing your own Vedana, your own state of mind, and externally knowing someone else's. Now, if you've developed telepathy, that's easy. But otherwise, you have to sort of infer it. If you see somebody put their hand on the stove and then pull it off and you know blow it, they experience pain, right? Unpleasant Vedana. And again, if you see somebody and they're turning red in the face and shaking their finger and making loud noises, anger. You can know their state of mind. So 
it's possible to infer people's experience of Vedna. I mean, give candy to a kid and watch their face. That's pleasant Vedna. Or you see somebody expressing some mind state in a verbal or uh, tactile way. You can, you can know what's going on. Questions about the third foundation? So, I just want to clarify, I think you said this, but I just want to repeat it, that this is where emotions are in the, mm-hmm. in the four foundations. So, these mind states, we do separate thoughts and emotions. Um, they're related, but we do separate them a lot, emotional states. Right. So, this is like an emotional state, any, any emotional state would be included in, under this, too. Correct. Yeah, knowing what emotional state you're living in. Yes, that would be third foundation. Just simply knowing. Now, third foundation is just to know. That's it. Just simply checking in and knowing about it. Fourth foundation, we deal with some of them. Anything else on third foundation? Is there a not knowing state listed in there? Well, that could be under delusion. Right. You know, that you're deluded and you don't know what's going on. It says uh, a deluded mind is deluded. Okay, so when you don't know, know that you don't know. Right. Yeah. At least know that you're confused. That can be very helpful for getting unconfused. Okay, so moving right along, and the fourth foundation is contemplation of dharmas. As I said, dharmas best translated in this circumstances as phenomena. So basically looking at phenomena, mostly mental phenomena, and seeing how they relate to the teachings of the Buddha. All right? And there are five teachings given here in particular. And the first one's the five hindrances. And how does one abide contemplating phenomena as phenomena with respect to the five hindrances? Here, if sensual desire is present in one, one knows that it is present. If sensual desire is absent, one knows that it is absent. And one knows how unarisen sensual desire comes to arise. And one knows how the abandonment of arisen sensual desire comes about. And one knows how the non-arising of the abandoned sensual desire in the future will come about. And then the same for the other of the five hindrances. For ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry and doubt. (coughs) One knows if it's present or absent. If it's there, why did it arise? What can you do to make it go away? And how can you keep it from coming back in the future? So for each of these unwholesome mind states, you need to know whether you're in that state. So practicing third foundation will be helpful. Sometimes you may be practicing third foundation, checking into your mind state and go, oh, this is one of those hindrances. And you move right into fourth foundation of, all right, how did I get myself into this problem? How can I get myself out? And what can I learn from this experience so I don't fall into this problem again in the future? Questions on the hindrances as a foundation in the back. Well, this is my favorite one because um, 
oh, it sounds so nice, you know, okay, I understand where it came from, and I've got my antidotes, and I can make it go away, and I know how not to let it arise again. And it's really enticing, and yet my experience, particularly recently, but in life, is it's just not that easy. And I understand the practice, but sometimes when it's taught that way, I start to feel distant, you know, like, well, I guess this isn't for me then, because being this messy human, um, it's not working that easily. As I said earlier, the spiritual path is really difficult. And this, in particular, is a very difficult one. And actually, in order to get it to work really well, like totally, you've got to get fully enlightened. The five hindrances don't get uprooted entirely until you're totally enlightened. And I don't see a lot of enlightened beings wandering around. So, yeah, most people are failing at this. But luckily, to advance on the spiritual path, you don't have to be perfect. If you succeed even once in preventing an unwholesome state from arising, you're in a circumstance where you're about to lose your temper and you recognize it and you don't, then you succeeded. If you fail the next 30 times, it doesn't take away the growth from that first one. It just doesn't add to it. Right? So, it's about doing the best that you can do and when you succeed, that's great. Learn from your successes. And when you fail, okay, learn from those as well. Uh, and yeah, unfortunately, more times than not, you're not going to be able to pull it off. This, this stuff is going to keep coming back. So... Okay. Yeah, um, there's a little more I want to say about that. Um, definitely the practice, I mean, I'm not saying it never works, so, so it does. Um, but the idea of when, when something, a mind state has arisen that's difficult and wanting to get rid of it, to me, can set me up, and I've seen it set other people up, for going, it gets worse, because it's the idea of trying to get rid of. And, I, and I've <laughs> often heard this stuff taught in terms of, you know, being with what is. So I, I work now with, okay, so I'm mad. Mm-hmm. That's it. Here right. I am. It's definitely important that you actually recognize what's going on. All right. So, all right, I'm angry. All right. You can't go, but I'm spiritual, so therefore I'm not angry. <laughs> that doesn't work. Or I need to change that now. Well, what you've got to do is, all right, I'm angry. What does it feel like to be angry? Is this pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? That might be the first place to start. Um, sometimes it feels really righteous and justified to be angry. I mean, when that guy... Never mind. Uh, but what did it feel like when you were actually that angry? Was it pleasant? I mean, it had a lot of energy behind it. It was unpleasant, though. Right, do you want to stay in an unpleasant state? Probably not. Okay. All right. So now, what are the antidotes for anger? Metta. Right. Is it possible for me to practice metta at this point? Well, sometimes it may be, no, I just want to go on being angry. But if you really can start to see the limitations of the negative mind state, such as it's unpleasant, you're not in a position to be making good decisions, you know, things like that, then maybe... Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do a little method. I'm not going to do it for him because he's the one that caused it. But I, I'll do it for these people. They're nice. Okay? Right? And so, I mean, that's a fine thing. You're, you're beginning to turn your mind away from the negative state and towards a more positive state. But yeah, coming up and going, I'm angry. I've got to get rid of it. 
not really helpful. Better to investigate and see the, the negative effects of it, such as it's unpleasant, you're not in a position to make rational judgments. If you act out of anger, you're going to have to deal with the karmic consequences of having acted from a very negative state, things like that. So really get the big picture and now see uh, this is not a good place to be. So rather than forcing yourself to make it go away, get a clear enough picture that you would prefer it to go away and then start applying the antidotes. But just sitting there going, I'm angry and I know I'm angry and I'm going to sit here and be angry. It's kind of a dead end as well. So get a bigger picture of it is, would be what I would say. Yeah, and then the last part of that then is you people talk a lot about anger at somebody, but there's there's anger fueled by fear. Mm-hmm. And that one is sort of like, um, seems like different how to work with that. Well, the first thing to do is recognize it. Oh, yeah. this is anger that has arisen because I feel threatened. All right. So now, instead of working with the anger, which is a symptom, go work with the cause. All right. So, yeah, it is different there. And it may be that what's called for is doing metta for yourself. Or, you know, maybe what's needed is move yourself from out of that situation. Right. Because this is actually an unhealthy place to be. I mean, there all sorts of possibilities there. But, yeah, often anger is triggered by fear. Um, the whole insane reaction to 9-11, all the anger, people attacking people because they wore turbans. That's fear. That's just plain and simple fear. Yeah. Other questions on the hindrances? All right, moving along. The next one is probably, in my opinion, one of the most important of the of the whole practices, and it's a shame we don't have lots of time. There is a transcription of a talk I gave on my website if you want to read about it, and that's the five aggregates. The five khandas, or skandhas in Sanskrit, khanda in Pali. Again, one abides contemplating phenomena as phenomena with respect to the five aggregates of grasping, the five things that we tend to cling to, grab hold of. And how does one do so? Here one thinks, such is form, such is the arising of form, such is the disappearance of form. Such are Vedana, such is the arising of Vedana, such is the disappearance of Vedana. Such is perception, such is the arising of perception, such is the disappearance of perception. Such are the mental formations, such is the arising of the mental formations, such is the disappearance of the mental formations. Such is consciousness, such is the arising of consciousness, such is the disappearance of consciousness. Okay, so these five. Material form, or as we say in Silicon Valley, the hardware. Right? Sometimes it's got other things with it. A rock, that's just material form. I don't think rocks do Vedana. Right? But if it's alive, it's doing Vedana. You know, the trees, they sort of like the water. They send their roots down to it. They, send, they lean out for the sunlight. They're responding, whether they experience it pleasant or unpleasant, but they're responding to stimuli towards it or away from it. Right? Okay? Then it gets even more complex. The actual ability to identify the stimuli. Right? To name it. I mean, 
when you start running the can opener, your dog knows what that means. He's identified that sound, and it means he's going to be fed, right? Okay, so the dog is smart enough to do the perception bit, right? Then it gets even more complicated, the mental formations, the thoughts and the emotions, right? All of this stuff is changing. And our consciousness, which is the sense consciousness, the, like I said, look at my nose, be aware of what's in your peripheral vision, that sort of consciousness, but also the consciousness of being conscious, being even self-aware, uh, very complex mental formations feeding back on themselves where you are conscious of yourself even. So we could look at this on a scale of very simple form, like a rock, or a bit more complex, able to respond to stimuli, like an amoeba. You put food near an amoeba, it'll go eat it. You put salt, it'll go away. right? Or even more complex, identifying the stimuli and acting upon the identification, your dog running because he hears the can opener, and then the thinking and emoting that we all get completely caught up in. Now, what we're supposed to do with them is to notice these and notice how they change. The rock may not be changing much, but it changes on a scale that's somewhat different from our time scale. But the rest of these are changing really fast. The Vedna come and go very rapidly. You know, that's why we are continually seeking new pleasures. It's not like you get a pleasure and it's like, oh, this is going to do me Vedna for the whole day. I can just sit here and... No. <laughs> right? you got to get another one. And our identification, as soon as we've identified it, we let it go. Oh, that's a bell. Right? We don't think about it anymore. Our thoughts and emotions just turning away there very ephemerally. And what we're conscious of continually changing. So there's a lot of change going on here. But even amongst the, the hardware, the physical things, your physical nature, the rocks, the cars, the mountains, all of it's changing. Pay attention to the changeable nature of everything. You know, when you're walking down the street, notice what's changing. Notice the leaves falling off the trees. It's changing. Notice the green grass sticking its head out thinking it's spring. Whatever. All right? So, notice all these changes. Understanding the aggregates and being able to work with them is a very rich vein to mine. And like I say, I wish I had a lot more time to discuss the aggregates, but I don't. So, any questions or comments on the aggregates? I don't quite remember which foundation we're on. And we're on the fourth. Yeah, but what? We're on phenomena. Uh, phenomena. Okay. All right. So, basically, phenomena fall into these five categories. All the phenomena. Yeah, so it's not that this is the only way to divvy up the psychophysical universe. This is a way to divvy up the psychophysical universe that the Buddha hit upon that was actually quite useful. Right? It's not arbitrary, but it's not the only way to divide it up. He divided it up this way, the physical part, and then four parts mental. And one of them is really narrow, the little Vedna. And the identification is a little bit broader, and the thoughts and emotions quite big. And consciousness, well, it sort of overlays all of it, but it's a good way to divide it up. 
I heard instead of the I heard instead of the translation of uh, mental states was a volition. What I would say is that the translation of volitional states is a subset of what's intended, mental states being a broader. I mean, obviously, your volition is a mental state. But I think what's meant here is everything. We could say that there are four aggregates that are very specifically defined. Body, Vedna, perception, and consciousness. And everything else goes into Sankara. Sankara is a word that probably could best be translated as concoctions or uh, fabrications. It has the sense of things being made, but it also has the sense of, you know, fabricated or concocted, not, not authentic or true. And so the translation as volitions is correct in some circumstances, but I think it's too limited for, for this, though you often see it there in, in the five aggregates. I think what's important is that this is all the mental stuff that's going on, all the stuff that gets concocted. Your thoughts and emotions, in other words. It seems, seems like the um, focus here is kind of like on Anicca. Right. right. So it's looking at the ephemeral quality of everything. Everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah, very definitely working with the aggregates will lead you to Anicca. And, spe- and it's specifically laid out here. You know, he didn't wait till he got to the refrain, arising and passing. He's saying right here at each one, such is form, such as its arising, such as its disappearance. And the same for each of the other aggregates. So this particular practice is an Anicca practice, very definitely. You'll get some Anatta and some Dukkha in there as well. But this is primarily aimed at Anicca. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on, uh, I've heard it, you said that the teachings are holographic. Mm-hmm. What exactly? I've heard that, I think I, I read that too and I, I was really confused. The teachings are laid out in a very linear order, right? So you, you've got the five aggregates, one, two, three, four, five, form, feeling, etc., right? And you've got dependent origination all laid out this way. But to really understand what the Buddha is saying, you've got to see the interpenetration of this. That, all right, here's dependent origination with its 12 links. And here are the aggregates. And, you know, some of the aggregates are in these links and some of them are in that links. You know, consciousness shows up specifically as one, but of course consciousness is happening when there's contact, which is another. And you have to be conscious to have craving and clinging. So it doesn't fit in just a linear form. Things, it, it, it only is going to make sense if you get a bigger picture of it, a picture of how all the pieces fit together in a more holistic form. And I think that's the best way that I can put it. Um, I mean, wh- one of these days I'm going to do a Sati Center on dependent origination when I get up enough courage. And I'll talk about the holistic nature, uh, the holographic nature of dependent origination. But when you start looking deeply at any of the pieces, you start seeing the other pieces reflected in it. And, and that 
keeps occurring over and over again. And so if you start looking at it, it's just a bunch of linear pieces. You're missing 90% of what's going on. It's the interrelationship between them. But because this was expressed as words, it has to come out linearly. There's no way to do 3D diagrams or anything with words. So it's expressed in a linear form, but the teaching is much more than just simply these linear lists. And it takes quite a while of fooling with them before you start to get a glimpse of what's going on there. Okay. The next foundation, or the next practice in the fourth foundation is the six internal and external sense bases. Again, one abides contemplating phenomena as phenomena with respect to the internal and external sense bases. And how does one do so? Here, one knows eyes, knows sight objects, and knows whatever fetter arises dependent on the two. One knows ears and sounds, taste, tongue and taste, nose and smells, body and textures, mind and thoughts. And whatever fetter arises dependent on the two. Now, the fetter means whatever uh, thing that's holding you back. All right, so don't take this as the classical ten fetters that are shed on the way to enlightenment, but anything that's holding you back. So you're walking down the street and you look in the shop window and it's like, oh, I want one of these. Now this is visual. There's the eye and there's the object. And the fetter of greed arose. Right? So by seeing this thing, you identified it as something that you want and this greed is up and now you're looking through your wallet to see if you have your credit card so you can go max it out. All right? Or you're walking down the street and you smell the bakery. You weren't even hungry before, but now you've got the sense impression and that's so good and you're in there eating a donut or something before you know it. All right? So now the fetter of gluttony has arisen because of a smell. All right? So basically, this is paying attention to the senses and your reaction to the senses. And in particular, knowing what these, senses, what these things are that arise. And one knows whatever fetter arises, knows how an unarisen fetter comes to arise, and knows how the abandonment of the fetter comes about, and knows how the future non-arising comes about. So like the hindrances, is if you've gotten caught, then how did you get here, how can you get out, and how can you prevent getting caught the next time? Pass the mic back. <clears throat> so I, I'm, I'm kind of confused. Um, it sounds a lot like what you just said now. <clears throat> um, the fetters. How, how does that? How do you differentiate that from what you were just talking about? With the hindrances. The hindrances, right? This is more noticing that it's the sensory input that's triggering the fetter. So you're really paying attention to the senses and saying, oh, it made this hindrance arise, as opposed to paying attention to your mental state and notice, oh, I'm in a hindrance. And then how does then, how does it differentiate different, how do you differentiate it from the Vedanas that you were describing earlier? Those are more pleasant, unpleasant, that Those are neutral. strictly pleasant, unpleasant, okay. neutral. Okay. You could have a very pleasant arising of a hindrance. 
Okay. Right. I smell the donut. It smells really good. Right. That's pleasant. And then, then the hindrance arises also. Of, of the craving the for the craving donut. The craving for it. Right. Exactly. So anything else on the senses? The senses, are, I mean, it seems, okay, yeah, right, we got six senses, all right, and you, you got that. But actually, there are a large number of suttas talking about the senses and getting a sense of how important it is to pay attention to your senses and how you react, you know, with what comes into the senses. There's the Vedana, the pleasant, unpleasant, and then there's the downstream fetter, the mental formations, because these fetters are all mental formations. They come up again from the senses. There are 248 suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya on the six senses. And you can read them all in one sitting, trust me. But it's very, it's very interesting to do so. They're all very short. But you have to learn to deal with the repetition to be able to do that. Okay. The seven factors of enlightenment. Now, this is the reverse of these negative mind states that produce fetters and hindrances. Again, one abides contemplating phenomena as phenomena with respect to the seven factors of enlightenment. And how does one do so? Here, if the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is present in oneself, one knows. If it's absent, one knows it's absent. And one knows how the unarisen enlightenment factor of mindfulness comes to arise and one knows how the complete development of the enlightenment factor of mindfulness comes about. If the enlightenment factor of investigation of states, of energy, of rapture, of tranquility, of concentration, of equanimity is present, one knows, absent, one knows, one knows how it arises and how to bring it to perfection. So this is the counterpoint to the negative states. These are the good states. If they're there, know they're there, know how you got them there, and know how to keep them around and bring them to perfection. There's an interesting bit on the seven factors of enlightenment in the uh, Mindfulness of Breathing Sutta, Majjhima Nikaya 118. At the end of that, there's some discussion of that. And there's, of course, a whole section in the Samyutta Nikaya on the seven factors of enlightenment. There's a lot that could be said. I came and gave a seven-day retreat one time and spoke about the seven factors of enlightenment for seven days. There's a lot there. We're sort of glossing over. Any questions? (laughs) Okay. And then the fifth of the practices is the Four Noble Truths. Okay. And again... One abides contemplating phenomena as phenomena with respect to the Four Noble Truths. And how does one do so? One knows as it really is, this is Dukkha. So when Dukkha happens, label it. Hey, that's Dukkha. Just know it's Dukkha. One knows as it really is. This is the origin of Dukkha. When Dukkha happens, the Buddha says there's going to be craving around. So if some Dukkha is happening, look to see if there's any craving. Check him out. He said, come and see for yourself. So if you're experiencing some dukkha, look in your mind and see if there's any craving. One knows as it really is, this is the cessation of dukkha. The cessation of dukkha comes about when the craving goes away. If you found some craving, what happens if you make the craving go away? Well, sometimes it's hard to make the craving go away. But if you can make the craving go away, does the dukkha go away? Check this stuff out for yourself. 
This is the path of practice leading to the cessation of dukkha, the Eightfold Path. And what follows here is a detailed explanation of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, which is worth, well, at least a day long by itself. So the key thing is using the Four Noble Truths as a practice is when dukkha arises, call it by its name. This is dukkha. I mean, dukkha is a great word, right? It's, it's not an English word or anything. It, it's got this huge categories. I mean, everything from a hangnail to your best friend dying, right? All of these are dukkha. Anything that's not perfect. Dukkha has a sense originally of a wheel with the hole for the axle being off center. And if you have a cart like that, it's not quite right. So things are out of kilter. That's dukkha. Name it. Then look for the craving. See if you can let go of the craving. See what happens. And practice the Eightfold Path. Everybody knows the Eightfold Path, right? Don't have to go through that? No, of course we have to go through that. All right. Right view. Right intention. Right speech. Right action. Right livelihood. Right mindful. Uh, right energy, uh, effort. Right mindfulness. And right concentration. There's a great little book that Bhikkhu Bodhi has on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. Get a copy of that. It's very good. All right. We've got five minutes for the guarantee. The sutta comes with a guarantee. <laughs> the only sutta that does. Whoever should practice these four foundations of mindfulness for just seven years can expect one of two results. Either arhantship in this life or if there be some substrate left, the state of a non-returner. So either full enlightenment or at least the third stage. Let alone seven years, whoever should practice these for just six years, five years, four years, three years, two years, one year may expect one of two results. Let alone one year, whoever should practice these for seven months, six months, five months, four months, three months, two months, one month, half a month may expect one of two results. Let alone half a month, whoever should practice these four foundations of mindfulness for one week may expect one of two results, either total enlightenment or the state of a non-returner. So, all you've got to do is one time do 24-7, totally mindful, and you're enlightened. Right? Just don't let your mindfulness slip for a week. According to the guarantee, you're right there. Okay, any last questions? I've got like two minutes. Actually, that guarantee brings up something that I find difficult with reading suttas, which is that so much of the emphasis when you've gotten through the sutta and it tells you what the purpose of the sutta is, is, you know, not to come back. And that is a belief that I I don't know whether reincarnation and coming back is something that's true or not true. And I've sort of chosen not to make a decision about that. So sometimes I get a little confused around I mean I yeah I know exactly the question you're asking and I don't know what happens after we die I mean I said you got to be comfortable with I don't know well I don't know I ain't dead yet and if I was before I don't remember so I don't know but what I look at this path as not so much to 
keep from coming back or anything like that. I want to know the truth. I want to know what's really going on. I want to see what's really happening. I don't want to be caught up in some delusion. Right? And so that's what this path is about. It's about getting out of the delusions that drive us to do things that are harmful to ourselves. Whether that means I come back, don't come back, you know, I don't know. So I look at it, I basically translate all this stuff about, you know, no more coming to birth and so forth as actually it's just about finding out the truth. And so that's what I'm, that's why I practice. I mean, it's, it's interesting. You can practice because, well, you'd like to have a little more pleasant samsara, right? You know, high quality samsara, <laughs> right? But that's not what it's about. The thing that, that really motivates me for practice is I'm curious. I want to know what's really going on. And this is a way, so I've been told, and so far it's borne out, that I can get a better understanding of what's happening. So looking at it from that standpoint, it's like, okay, the stuff here I don't understand. I don't need to understand the metaphysics of it. I need to follow the practices that are laid out there and see if they actually take me to a, in a direction I want to go. And so far, they have, so I continue to practice them. That's the best way I can put it. Into a direction with less greed, hatred, and delusion. Into a direction that's more loving, more generous, and more wise. That's the direction I want it to go. Yes. Everything. Right. Yeah, I haven't got the truth about everything. All right. It's not that I have found the truth about everything, but I find that it's taking me to a deeper and deeper understanding in a lot of areas. In particular, a deeper understanding of the illusion of self and how that causes so many problems. A deeper understanding of the interconnectedness of the universe and how mistaking separate objects as the basic reality causes problems. Things like that. But no, it's not going to pay my taxes for me. Or anything like that. So the thing that you're finding out is just mostly through the the practice of the four foundations of mindfulness, rather than uh, through uh, lots of reading through spiritual books or... All of that helps. I wouldn't say there's any one thing that's been the most helpful. One thing that's been the most helpful is actually the sitting meditation for extended periods of time on a retreat. That's probably been the most helpful thing of all. Going on like a 10-day or longer retreat and just sitting meditation again and again. But, you know, maybe I got two really good insights in 10 days. Boy, that was a really productive retreat. You know, I'm happy if I just get one. I mean, ate a lot of good food and I didn't have to cook it, so. Yeah. Okay, so I'm already over time. I want to say thank you very much. I certainly enjoy sharing the Dharma with you. 
And as we go from here, may all of us be well and happy. May all the people that we encounter be well and happy. May all the beings that we encounter be well and happy. May all beings everywhere be well and happy.